Welcome to the Our Safe Harbor Church podcast. Here you can listen to our Sunday sermon, Monday morning message, and midweek Bible study. We hope you will consider subscribing, sharing, leaving a review, but please be sure to check out our website at www.OurSafeHarbor.com to learn more about us and find ways to get involved. Our Safe Harbor Church, we are with you wherever you are. First of all, hello. Second, wow. I have, I have great respect for anybody who has hung with this and listened to the sermons, listened to the last two long form videos and still hit play today. That, that means a lot about you and about your searching character and about the fact that you are one of these people Jesus was asking for, the people who ask, seek, and knock who aren't just sitting there accepting what they've been told, but are rather really doing some deep dive research. And um, I'm impressed. So thank you. Thank you very much. I'm humbled that you're here. Humbled even more that some of you donate to this. Uh, Others aren't able to, but they hit like, subscribe and and share and they're spreading the news. So that's lovely. We have a lot of work to do. So let's just get into it. To review, not much of a review. There's a large cosmic war going on between demons and angels, the good guys, the bad guys, light and darkness. And it's been going on since the day of creation. Maybe even before. We don't know why the earth was formless and void. This is a very early on fight. And it does affect us one way or the other every single day of our lives. God is involved in this war with us. He is part of the process and we are as well. Until the end of the war, we war is normative. Now the end of the war is certain. I believe that with all my heart, that God wins the war, that that is not in doubt. The progress of the war, however, is directly affected by how we work with God and how we respond to what comes at us every given day. The future can be determined by God. God can determine that at a certain point in history, he's going to do this or that, or he's going to place such and such a person at such and such a crossroads. He can determine this, but God does not have every detail of the future planned. A great deal of what happens in the future, and that phrase in the future is just so problematic, but a great deal of what will happen in the future depends directly on how we respond to God and to the various stimuli that hit us each day. We've already seen numerous examples of this in the life of Hezekiah, Ezekiel, Moses, Jeremiah. Uh, We could go on and on, but you've heard all of that and I want to respect that and not eat up your time with a lot of review. So let's take a look at one passage in 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 9 through 12, let's say. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting. Now, the NIV says wanting. The word is better translated willing, as far as I can tell. And again, I've I've stated this so many times. I'm not a Greek expert. I'm not a Greek novice. I go to experts when I have a question. No one person can know everything, and I don't know Greek, but I know people, 
I checked with them. God doesn't want, that's a weak way of phrasing it, but even that, God is not wanting anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance, but the day of the Lord will come. It says, like a thief in the night, the heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? And he goes on from there. A um, couple of questions pop up, do they not? God is not willing that anyone should perish. Will anyone perish? I think those two statements, one statement and one follow-up question, are both very valid. There are no logical issues with either. There are no logical blips. There are no logical leaps. So God is not wanting slash willing that any should perish. That's a given. We've taken that. So the follow-up question is, will any perish? And here's the hinge point because some people might have thought in times past when I've openly said that I'm almost a universalist, they've thought that maybe I'm hedging my bets and not been as forceful about what I really believe. Here's why I can't say I'm an absolute universalist. While I do appreciate the absolute universalist argument, I believe that there's an indication in scripture, but it's, it's not plain. I'm going to give you that but it's rather in passages like this. Some people will choose destruction. I don't know how, and I don't know why, but there are people whose evil has saturated their life so much that I truly believe that confronting God, seeing the evidence of who he is and being offered salvation, they will still say no. And some of them have even written about that. Uh, some of the, like Stephen Fry, who is a comedian, actor, philosopher, incredibly well-educated fellow in Breton, he has uh, absolutely said that, no, if there's a God, he plans to argue with him about the way he did things. And I've heard that from others as well. Whether they really will or not, or would or not, I have no idea. Neither do you, neither do they. But I'm, the reason I say I'm almost a universalist is because I want to leave a lane out there for those that just say, no, I don't want eternal life. I don't want whatever God has. While I can't imagine the sort of brain that would do that, it could happen. So this day of the Lord that is coming like a thief in the night, some people argue about that. Was that about the fall of Jerusalem? Um, could be. The book was written before then. Is it about the end of time? Very likely. Is it, you know, which one then? I don't think you can settle that from internal evidence. I, I just don't. What I will say is each of us have a day of the Lord coming. And so that's one of the ways I always say, you know, um, I'm not worried about the end of time. I'm worried about the end of me. I recently even did one of those uh, how long do you think I'll live indicators? In fact, I did three of the tests and they all came up very depressing for me because the average age uh, life expectancy for a male in America is 77.28 at present. Now, if you're over 77, do not panic. Please remember, a lot of folk die as children. A lot of folk die in accidents. Most gunfire deaths are either suicides, that's number one, 
or they're drug related, which tends to skew very young. And so all of that brings that number. Average does not mean normal. And that's, I don't want to get into that, but just be aware. 77.28. But I went, on, went through it. All three calculators gave me 92 or 91. And to me, that is so depressing. I don't want to go that far because I'm really looking forward to heaven. But God gets to pick the day and time if he wants to. I believe that most of us, when we die, it is not God saying, and die, but rather just because of the accumulated life experiences, our genetics, what's happening to our body and our environment. Our job is to be faithful. But when that day comes, we have our personal day of the Lord. Now, for Christians, and I believe for the vast swaths of humanity, that's a good thing. But we'll let you decide. If God is not willing that any should perish, maybe we ought to ask another question. If God knows everything, according to the Calvinist, everything that ever will be, according to the Calvinist, um, he knows who will be saved and not saved because that's foundational to Calvinism. Remember Tulip. If you don't, if that's not, you know, immediately bringing it all to mind, please go back and review the sermons that go along with these long-form videos. This idea that uh, God has determined who he has selected and that only those he has selected will he save. Jesus did not die for everybody, according to them, but only those elect the people he chose before the creation of the world seems rather narrow, but if God is not willing for any should perish, why would he be willing to create a vast majority of human beings knowing that they cannot be saved because he will not let them be saved, because he will not call them, and he will not reach them out of their, um, their total depravity and their inability to do anything to save themselves, he chooses to save this one, but not these 43, just to pull numbers out. How does this increase faith in a loving God? Well, I'll give you the answer. It doesn't. And again, where Calvinism becomes the major religion in an area, faith drops and atheism grows. We can track this. It is not that hard to do. And so, Atheists use this against us. I've had many atheists. Well, I say many. It might have been a dozen. It just feels like many. All right, so let me sharpen that. Maybe about a dozen well-educated people, most of them former believers, come to me and say, it is a reprehensible God that you serve. If there is a God, he's evil. Now, there was even a um, quotation, and somebody's going to have to sharpen me up on this. Um, I will get the quote and it will actually be in a sermon soon, okay? Um, that means probably already has been in one for those of you that are listening here. But I, I believe that it was Charles Spurgeon and uh, John Whitfield that were having the, discur the discussion, but I could be very wrong. But the Arminian, the one who was not a Calvinist, he believed humans have agency and choice looked at this famous Calvinist and said, your God is my devil. Now think about that. Whether you're driving, you're sitting at home, however you're doing this, I really want you to absorb this. Because the fact is that a God who creates all humanity 
completely depraved, and yet chooses only to save a very small percentage of these humans and gives them no ability to be saved on their own, to choose to come to him. He will not let them come to him. He refuses to, to change anything in his plans, his great and wonderful and merciful plans, and therefore the vast majority of them are going to burn forever in a torture pit for something they had no control over. And we're supposed to go sit in pews and sing praises to him? You know something? No. And it creates atheism, but the people that are so wrapped up in this, they feel that it gives no God in his mercy is saving some, and, and it's always they're in the group, which, you know, helps. And, you know, you know and, and God, we just cannot question God, his great and wonderful plans forever. It sounds to me very much the way that I hear when I listen to radical Muslims, not the vast majority of Muslims. I've met so many of them, and frankly, everyone I've met has been incredibly delightful and very hospitable and very kind, but they have their radical fringe. Uh, and please remember, the radical fringe of Muslims kills far more Muslims than they kill Christians. Muslims don't like them either. But I've heard some of the radical speeches of these Muslims and they'll talk about death to this group and death to that group and kill uh, anyone who's you know, homosexual or Jewish or uh, you know, wears a short skirt or doesn't do the beard right. I mean, just serious all the way down and then give all praise to the great and merciful and wonderful Allah. And I'm going, I don't know that those, those, those don't work. You can't shove that one into this one. These, these gears do not mesh. It's the same thing with tulip, Calvinism, and this. I mean, Jesus laments in Matthew chapter 26 and 24 that some that were born will be lost. He laments. Well, wait a minute, if, you're, if it's entirely up to you, why are you letting that happen? I hear these questions from atheists, I hear these questions from Christians, and I have to look at them and say, we have a lot of work to do to change your idea of who God is and who you are, the two big questions. What kind of God made the world and what kind of world did that God make? Isn't it much more sensible to think that God creates us as free creatures within some limits and then sorrowfully allows us to choose evil? Doesn't that make a lot more sense? And biblically, doesn't that match the scripture and your experience? Has God determined before you were born that you would be lost, then, oh my goodness, do we have passages that we need to struggle with. And if I don't think you can wrestle them to the ground, frankly. And Isaiah 63, verses 9 and 10. In all their distress, he too was distressed. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old, yet they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned and became their enemy and he himself fought against them. I have a question. Is that not the height of mendacity and hypocrisy? We don't use the word mendacity very often. Lying and hypocrisy. 
if God truly says, when you were distressed, I was distressed and I pulled alongside you and the angel of my presence saved you, but you chose a different path. So I decided to turn, you grieved me and I became your enemy and fought against you. Wait a minute. If God had decided all things before the creation of the world, this statement is nonsensical at best and very much a lie and evil to say, you know, I, I, I loved you and I brought you all in, but your, your loss, your, your lack of salvation, that's your fault. But even before that, did you notice he said, when you did wrong, it grieved me. How can it grieve you when you planned it and you know it's going to happen? How can you, how can that grieve you? Can't surprise you. You're the one that planned it. If it grieved you, don't plan it. You see what I mean? Hope so. There, oh, there are more. Um, and they're not all in the Old Testament in a poetic book. So why don't we go to Ephesians? I think it'll be good. Um, let's go to Ephesians 4 and verse 30. And again, I could print these out ahead of time, but we have time, don't we? Um, you, however, did not come to know Christ that way. I'm sorry, let's not, that's not where I want to go. Verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Don't grieve him. Well, how could you grieve him if they knew it was coming for the last many thousands of years? Makes no sense. And the thing is, and we could do this all day. We really could. But we're just going to do a couple of more just to, to show you that it's, it's everywhere. Um, but you do have to open your eyes and read the book without people telling you your, these are your guardrails. You know, the T-U-L-I-P, the Institutes of Christian Doctrine, this is our rules, here's our catechism. You gotta find a way to read it, look at it, question it, wrestle God as much as you need, and then see what's really there. It changes everything, it does. Acts 5, 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised hearts and ears. You're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. That's Stephen before the court. Now, if Calvinism was correct, the court could have gone, well, duh. That's the plan since the day before creation. We, um, it's not our fault we resisted God. He made us. And even if Stephen was right, that they were lost and they were in combat, they were in conflict with God, why bring it up? It's not their fault. There's nothing they could do. Total depravity. There's nothing they could do. You want, let's do one more. Okay, I'm gonna cheat. <laughs> I, might, I might do two more. Uh, Hebrews, let's go to Hebrews chapter three. We're not gonna turn a lot in Hebrews. I'm trying to keep this manageable. Uh, Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 8. Do not harden your hearts as in the day as you did in a rebellion during the time of testing in the desert. Why tell people not to harden your hearts if the hardening of their hearts had been planned from eternity? Makes zero sense. Uh, you can go down to verse 15. There's, a, there's another one of those if I can turn the page here. 
Again, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Mm. That's a problem. Chapter 4, verse 7. <laughs> Guess what it says? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This is kind of like a guy singing just as I am until somebody comes forward. He's just going to go, listen, this isn't part of God's plan that you stay away from him. Don't harden your hearts. Respond to God. Respond to God. Well, Calvinism says you're not able to do that unless the Holy Spirit picks you and makes you. I hope that helps. In Exodus chapter 32 and thir verse 33, 32, 33, pretty easy to remember. In Exodus, God warns them that if they don't start behaving, he's going to blot their name out of the book of life. Well, did you just hear that? There was a book of life and their name's already in it. And he's wa warning them it can be blotted out of it. How does that work with Calvinism? And the answer is it just doesn't. Not at any level. And there are no explanations that can be offered. Same warning, by the way, in Revelation 3, 5. Uh, or if you get near the end of Revelation, Revelation 22, 19. God had truly planned to save these people. He had even put their name in the book. They had decided not to follow God and not be saved. They made that choice, not God. He's warning them not to do it. By the way, I look upon this as incredibly good news because it means that all of us get to write our story. Nobody wrote your story before you were born. Oh, there are some limitations. I'm a white man that's five foot nine. And my body has never been athletically built. I was quite chubby there for several years before I lost that weight. But I didn't put on, pack on, you know, rock hard abs. I think the abs are in there somewhere. They've yet to be found by modern science, but I do trust them in their efforts. I cannot play for the NBA. And if I tried from my youth to practice work, find the best trainers, I still could not have ever played for the NBA period, the limitation of my body. But I was also born to Bill and Catherine. Now being born in their house meant that I had certain limitations as well. There were paths they allowed me to take and there were paths that they did not. And because of that, could I have been this or that or the other? No, I was never given that opportunity. Could I have been a cowboy? No, no, no didn't live around where that sort of thing happens and never learned how to do it because I was moved elsewhere by parents. So what I'm saying is we have free will within an envelope, an envelope of our reality, our family structure, the experiences that we have, the stimuli in our region. Um, we are, we give to Compassion International. We, we've supported kids for years through them. Uh, and I look at my grandsons and granddaughter and they have all sorts of opportunities, lessons and books and colorful toys and experiences. And then I look over at these poor children we're sponsoring and we're hoping to give them a better chance. They don't have toys and they don't have these experiences. So is their free will the same as my grandkids? 
Yes, but it's within a different envelope and God understands that. But within those strictures, we can find a way to grow and write our story. My story is very different from that of my parents. And that did not come without conflict, but it came because I was given the ability to, by God to make different decisions. A lot of them were the worst possible decision, but some of them were really good decisions. You get to do that too. Our working with God can be described as a dance or as a potter making a pot out of clay. Go to um, Jeremiah 18. As any potter will tell you, your creation is a partnership with your material because the material will only let you do what the material is made up of. And it can decide, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. And so you work with it and you work with it. And as many of them know, sometimes you grab it, you put it back and you'll think about it when you can mix it with other things and make something else out of it. God and us making, you know, we're not making him, he's making us, but that's a dance. It's a partnership. Many in Israel uh, thought God considered them of no use at all. He, many in Israel had thought that God had abandoned them. And that's why Jeremiah tells that story. You can read in Jeremiah 18 verses 1 through 10 that he is saying, no, there, God is there and he wants to work with you, but you're going to need to learn the give and take with God. Well, you'll also find when you read Jeremiah that God says he changed his mind and that other things surprised him, that he had never even thought about that. And we brought those up before. Now, if you could live your life over, knowing what you know now, you would make some profound changes. I know people who say, I wouldn't change it then. Well, I think that that's really rather silly. Now, it would break my heart if I changed one thing and that meant these beautiful grandkids didn't exist. We all understand the little mind games of time. Will they still hurt that girl's feelings? Truthfully, would you really have shoplifted that candy bar? Truthfully, would you have married that person that ended up abusing you, I would think you would change some things. Agreed? But you are stuck with some of the decisions that you made. The body that you got, the life you've got. I mean, God's, God's um, you can blame God for the body you're born with and the hair that's there, but by the time you die, the things we do to our hair and our bodies, that's on us. He's a master potter. But he can even take that old clay that you are now and make something with it if you start engaging with him, realizing he wants you to do that, that it's not all part of God's plan, that you are a throwaway, a castaway, uh, a, a warped pot. Nah, he can, do, he can do work with you. The Bible teaches that his methods, his styles, his approaches all change and that that is a virtue. His character never changes, and that's what happens. People will go look at the, at the verses that you know, there is no variance in him or shadow of turning, and people go, you see, God never changes his mind. Untrue. Those passages are referring to his character, his method, methods, his choices, his movements, his approaches. All, all of them differ, not just a little bit, but a lot. We saw last week in our long form about Hezekiah, just one of my 
my favorite little stories there because he, he's going, well, I'm dying and nobody cares and God won't do anything about it. And God goes, well, okay. Sends Isaiah in to say, you're going to die in this time. And he goes, no, no, no. And before Jeremiah, I'm sorry, before Isaiah is out of the courtroom, God goes, okay, go back in there. Tell him he's going to live longer. What about Jonah? One of the great stories. He's told, go and say, 30 days and Nineveh shall fall. Well, did Nineveh fall? Pop quiz? Any of you Bible people? Did Nineveh fall? And any of you that are out there that are going, well, um, yeah, it, it didn't fall, but that was because God, uh, they repented. Well, if God knew they were going to repent, what was the whole Jonah thing about? You don't really need Jonah for this because his sermon consisted of 30 days and then of a shawl. That's it. He didn't like them. He didn't want them to be saved. He didn't try to save them. He just announced their death sentence. It was they who responded to that going, oh no, we don't want that to happen. Let us repent and turn toward Yahweh. And Jonah, <laughs> Jonah goes to God, yeah, I knew it. You knew you were gonna do that. Oh, that's what you're like, forgiving people. I mean, I, I just love it. It's, it's one of my favorite little stories. And you've heard me talk about it before, so maybe I should be quiet. Um, how about those who had the point? You remember? They had a good point when they said, well, it's up to God. And God did all the planning. Then God's very evil. I mean, I listened to a broadcast recently by um, two people that are really comedians. And they got angry at God. Something had set them off during it, and they'd said, you know, well, you know, remember God, our merciful great God, who invented childhood cancer. Mm, that hurts, doesn't it? What do you say? What do you say to those people? I'm not sure you know what to say to them if you're not paying attention to what we're doing here. How about, there's a passage, and I'm, I'm thinking about it now. I'm going to have to look down to actually pull up the page. Um... What about Joel? Joel chapter 2. Do you know, have you read Joel recently? Uh, most of us know Joel because of the quotation in Acts chapter 2. Let me get to it here in this sticky-paged Bible that I have. I guess one should not snack while eating, while reading, rather. Uh, Joel chapter 2. I'm just going to read a couple verses. Verse... Yeah, really, do I want to just do two? I think I do. Um, here we go. The vine, verse 12 and 13. The vine is dried up. The fig tree is withered. The pomegranate, the palm, the apple tree, all the trees of the field are dried up. Surely the joy of mankind is withered away. Put on sackcloth, O priest, and mourn wail you who minister before the altar come spend the night in sackcloth you who minister before my god for the grain offerings and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your god wow why what's going on oh well he explains god's coming like a fire 
He's coming like a destruction. Seeds are shriveled. You know, dear God, please call, help us. And then chapter two, even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Listen to that line. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. Goes on. Who knows? He might turn and have pity. A willingness to change, a wanting to change, a wanting to drop the sentence against you, a wanting to name and give you clemency, begging you to come accept clemency. Does God grieve? Yes. Does God rejoice? Yes. Does God call for us to respond and give us an option and what happens to us? Yes. All of these things. This removes the arguments of atheists who declare God an uncaring, torture-monger dictator. It does not remove all of the arguments. For example, childhood cancer, tsunamis, earthquakes. These are real questions we've got. C.S. Lewis tried to answer all of this by use, uh, positing something called the best possible world. Uh, he used illustrations such as if you want a body that is warmed and comforted by a fire, you also have to have a body that if you catch on fire. And if you want a body that feels good when you are embraced, then you need a body that can also be crushed. I'm not a real fan of that theory, although I'm a huge fan of C.S. Lewis. I think that there are some intractable problems, at least intractable so far, that we have to work out. But we don't have to wonder if God has chosen us. He has. We don't have to wonder if God's invited us to the dance. He has. And he remakes us when we fail to play our part again and again and again. See David as an example. David was a lousy individual. And I know people get upset at that. But he was lousy to Michael, his wife, twice his wife. Horrified horrific treatment from David. The treatment, the way he cavalierly killed anybody that wasn't part of, you know, his little group, um, that, oh my goodness. The way he treated wives, the way he treated his sons and didn't raise them, but let them get away, literally with rape and murder, like their daddy. And there are a lot of people that preach sermons about, but God still used David and made him a man after his own heart. That's not the phrase means. In pursuit of God's heart, but man, he didn't catch it very often. And his pursuit of it produced some beautiful psalms that we really needed to have. I believe inspired by God. Do I believe David was saved? Yes, I do. Do I believe he was a role model? No. There are parts of his life. You could role model that. But there are, there are ministers that, that tell women that you know you got to forgive your husband remember what god did with david um and there are a lot of ministers who have committed adultery that tell people well now we have to forgive me because remember david um god kept remaking david but that doesn't mean we have to we have to do his mistakes 
and, and, and to use those sort of things to bless your own life with forgiveness and lack of consequences, that's offensive. But ask Peter, ask Job, ask any of them, does God give you second chances? Does God give you third and fourth? Yeah. Hebrews chapter 12, giving yourself to God is your spiritual sacrifice. You get to do that. It's not as if God calls you, those of you that are a few of the elect, he says, no, no, choose God, come in here, lay yourself on the altar, become a part of the plan. Responsiveness is a virtue. If all of our prayers bounced off God because everything was predetermined, well, what's the point? And by the way, I've talked to Calvinists that will say, well, your prayer was predetermined too. And I'm going, and again, what's the point? Well, then, because it's going to turn you into this kind of person who, and again, what's the point? If I have no agency and everything is planned out, what's the point? Responsiveness is a virtue. You will see some, um, some passages in Scripture that tend to indicate God doesn't respond. We're going to look at a couple. In 1 Samuel 15, 29, the glory of Israel, referring to God, cannot or will not recant or change his mind. He's not a mortal that he should change his mind. Ooh, that sounds rather strict and firm and not a lot of loopholes there. How about Numbers 13, 19? God is not a human being that he should lie, a mortal that he should change his mind. Okay, question. Do these verses mitigate, negate, I should say, negate all of those other passages we've looked at where God did change his mind, was surprised, offered this, then this? Um, I don't think you can do that. Every, that breaks every rule of biblical interpretation I know. And I don't, think it's un, I don't think it's necessary to have to break those rules. Note that the verses in 1 Samuel, in that one section, and let me, let me read that. The glory of Israel will not recant or change his mind. He is not a mortal that he should change his mind. Comes in the middle of a pack of verses, not much. It's all right there where God says he's sorry he made Saul king and now is determined to unmake Saul as king. He intended to bless Saul, but he's ended up cursing him. So why, what, what is this one verse meant? It told Saul and told Samuel, you've gone too far. You have now lost the kingship. Could Saul still be saved? Oh, absolutely. Could his kingship be saved? No. And that's what he's saying. I'm not going to change my mind on that. God can draw a line and he drew a line. He said, Saul, you've just gone too far. You, I will not recant that uh, you've disappointed me so much. I've drawn a line. And then a little earlier in chapter 13, verses 13 to 14, he says, I, I do want to bless you, but I'm going to end up cursing you. And then it happens. How then can we take a verse as some do right in the middle of all of this chapter 15, verse 29, and make it mean something completely different? Well, atheists love it when we do that because they'll say contradictions in the Bible, contradictions in the Bible. And while there are all kinds of 
differing stories in the Bible, we need to have the context. The context is that Samuel had heard the news from God that he was going to have to curse Saul and remove him from the kingship. And so Samuel prayed all night long for God to change his mind. That meant, if you hadn't noticed, Samuel thought God could change his mind. Now, where would he get that crazy idea? Oh, only from all the years of Jewish history. And so he thought God could change his mind. But in this instance, he realized God's not going to. There are times when God has to reach out to those who are praying to him and say, no, not this time. I, I've found a, a line. Think of Zechariah, and I'm going to let you go there on your own. Zechariah chapter 8 and verse 14. Uh, it's also in Ezekiel 24, 14, where God says, no, no, I'm not going to change my mind. And by the way, it is only meaningful for God to say, I am not going to change my mind if it were possible for God to change his mind. I don't know why people don't see that, but I think it's because we've been so blinded to our security blanket that says, God knows all things, he has all things under control, it's all gonna be great. In fact, God changes his mind and it's good news. Jeremiah 18, verses seven through 10. Joel, we already, uh, Jonah, we already talked about. Jonah 4, 2. Joel, we talked about. Jonah 2, verses 12 through 13. Had Saul repented as Nineveh had repented, God very well might have changed his mind. But Saul got, gave God no reason to change his mind. There's a weird story that I still am uncomfortable with in Scripture. I've preached about it. I've taught it. But I, I, I can't help but think that there are layers to this story that I'm probably not grasping. And that's the story of Balaam in Numbers 22 and 23. There's a, a non-Jewish, therefore outside the covenant, king called Balak. And Balak is trying to get Balaam to prophesy what Balak wants to hear. Now that may sound strange, but it really isn't. Um, when people go to a psychic or a palm reader, I guess they still do. Uh, every now and then I'll drive through a town and there's this really bad shaped little hovel of a house. And it's the one that'll have the sign, you know, mind reader, tell your future. Uh, okay. Um, there are people that read horoscopes. There are people, what, would you keep reading horoscopes if every single day it said, oh, it's going to be bad. Oh, no. It really stinks to be you today. No, you'd pretty much quit that. Why do we, I don't, but why do you read a horoscope? Why do you do astrology? Which is, these things are ludicrous. But why do you do this, that, and the other? It's because you want them to tell you what you want to hear. You know, somebody out there loves you. There's a big opportunity coming your way. Oh, boy. I've noticed that Chinese fortune cookies have given that up. Have you noticed that? My wife and I like Chinese food. So we're, we're at Chinese restaurants rather often. And it's been years since I got a fortune from a fortune cookie. Now they're aphorisms. They're proverbs. 
you know, working hard means getting up early. You know, and I'm going, oh, okay, fair enough, but you know, am I going to meet the love of my life? And you know, oh, I'm I'm sitting across the table from her. We pay people to tell us what we want. You, you do that often with ministers. Most of my life was going to church to hear a minister teach forcefully what we already believed so that we could nod our heads and say, yeah, we got it. Every single Sunday, every Bible class. I was never, I can never remember a time growing up where a minister or a Bible class teacher said, now I think you, you think this because that's the way that we've always taught it. But I think we need to relook at this and it means something else. That would not have been tolerated in a church in which I grew up. Don't know about yours. We paid the minister to comfort us with the words we wanted him to use to comfort us. And that's what's happening here. The Lord informed Balak that God's not like a human being who can lie or change his mind for the sake of convenience. Balaam and other prophets for hire in that age, by the way, Balaam was well known uh, inside and outside of scripture. Uh, they thought they could force God's hand by making prophecies that would make God lose face if he didn't follow through. And, Jesus, and God disabuses them of that notion. There's a lot of that that goes on in politics, friends. Back in the last American presidential election, I don't know how many people sent me links. You got to hear this, this sermon by this preacher on YouTube because this is the end of the age. And if we don't elect this particular fellow, then this is going to happen. But the God's going to move and this guy's going to win. And it's going to, and people came to my office to push it. Then they hand me links to all of these preachers. Very few of these preachers have apologized, but I've seen a couple where they stood up, faced the camera on YouTube and said, I really thought I was hearing from God and I was wrong. And they have just opened up their heart and I, God bless them. Most of them, no, nope. you know what they're doing? They're still going out saying, you know, the end of the world's coming soon and here are the signs. You know, don't look behind me at everything I've said before. It's, it is sad. God tells Balak, you don't always get what you ask for. Sometimes my plan is more important than your desire. In 1 Chronicles 21 and verse 15, God told David that he was going to destroy Jerusalem with an angel. He sends the angel to the countryside first, then turns it toward Jerusalem. Where That's when the angel of the Lord stops the angel and says, that's enough. God agrees with the angel of the Lord and relents. So what God told David he was going to do, he didn't end up doing. He changed his mind because of love. God is love. Is God omnipotent? Is he omniscient and all those? Yes. But you don't see God saying, I am known for my omnipotence. I am omnis omniscient. No, he says, I am love. Read 1 John. How is he characterizing God? All by love. Remember also we have Hezekiah, many examples in the life of Moses, Israel, and the life of Eli. Um, uh, we haven't brought up Eli, have we? I just said that and realized, I don't think we brought up Eli. All right, here we go. 1 Samuel. Um, 
he, Samuel's about to come on the scene here, but here we go. First Samuel chapter, chapter one, I think. Is that where I want to be? Um, it's a little, a little early. Let's go to chapter two, verses 27 through 31. Now, a man of God came to Eli and said to him, this is what the Lord says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your father's house when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your father out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your father's house all the offerings made with fire by the Israelites. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made in Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise, here we go, here's the meat, ready? I promised that your house and your father's house would minister before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. Those who honor me, I will honor, but those who despise me will be disdained. You, how clear do you need it to be? He said, I promised you this, but now no, uh-uh. Says, far be it from me. There's another way of just saying that. <laughs> no. Why? Because you disdain me. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be here while you do that. My promise is completely invalid because of your attitude and your actions. God said that. And not just once. He has said it so many times. In um first, uh, first Kings chapter 21, he had promised to kill Ahab, and then says, Okay, I won't for now. In 2 Chronicles 12, he was going to allow Shishak to conquer Israel. But then they repented. So God said, okay, and changed his mind. It's in the book. Amos chapter 7. Listen carefully. If, write these down if you can. I'm not really working off of scripted notes here. I've got all kinds of papers and books open. Um, so write down the verses that you really need, and Amos is one of those. Amos chapter 7, the first six verses, twice, twice he says, I'm going to bring this judgment on Israel. Amos intercedes and asks him not to, and God goes, okay. Twice in six verses, Amos chapter 7. Does it matter when we pray? Oh, you betcha, as my friends in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan would say. Does it? Does God change things when we pray? Yeah, but it has to be according to his greater plan of righteousness and love, absolutely. If we're not praying out of selfish reasons, I mean, James talks about ways that we can ruin our prayers. But here, holy lives have real power to change the world. Prayer has real power. When we get together and make an agreement, God says he very well may enter in and make that agreement with us. And we can, we can face this universe. There is real cosmic level pervasive evil in the cosmos. And we can face it and make a difference. We're not victims to an invisible carved in stone will of God that can take our children, crush our nations, wash away our cities, make our jobs vanish. We're not there. 
we have, we have power in prayer and in community. Our safe harbor, although we're scattered around the world, literally, we are a community. We have the prayer wall. If you don't have the Tithely app for us, please look at our website and there's a little phone, uh, cell phone icon. Click on it, it does all the work for you. Then you have all the sermons, you have all of our videos. You have the prayer wall, access to a prayer wall where people send in prayer requests and you can click anonymously or you can put your name in there that you are praying for these people or send them a message of encouragement. Our faithfulness and the way we treat our families matter. In the book of Malachi, God says that one of the main reasons why he is walking away and going silent is because of the way men were treating their wives. The way we treat people matters. It changes the direction of where God is going and what he is doing. We need to remember that Jesus, who knew his father, called us to get in there close in Luke 18. And he says, listen, I know my father. If you want to get something changed, you're going to have to be like the persistent widow. He tells a story in Luke 18 about a widow that keeps coming to get her case heard. Judge keeps not listening. Why? Well, judges were paid back then by, um, from a percentage of the settlement. And bribery could be done that way, but uh, this woman had nothing to offer him, so he didn't want to be bothered with her, but she keeps coming, she keeps coming. So finally he finds for her. Now, is God a, a bad judge? No, but Jesus is the older brother telling the younger kids, if you want dad to, to help you out, you gotta be persistent and not stop. You don't nag, but you just go back and say, this is, unless he changes your mind, you keep going to change his. That's what Jesus said, and none of that makes sense with any level of Calvinism. So, God gives us a say-so in the way the world runs, and that means we no longer pray prayers full of escape hatches for God. Lord, if it be thy will, restore such a one to a measure of health that they might, just all these escape hatches. No, we come boldly before the throne of God, because God said we can, and we say, this is what we want. Either Please show us that we shouldn't want this or change our minds about what we want or work with us here in bringing this to pass. I've had people say, that's disrespectful. And I'm always going, have you read the Psalms? Have you read any of the prayers in the Old Testament? Checked out any real prayer in the Bible? You might have learned your prayer out of a book of the school of nice prayers that won't offend everybody. Uh, God's, that's not, that's not a book in the Bible. This is why our safe harbor gives money to and volunteers with groups like GraceWorks, one generation away, with the bread shed, with, um, and forgive me if it just went away, our Kirksville brothers and sisters can put it in the comments. In Kirksville, um, Missouri, they have a, a charity, a real ministry to those who are pregnant outside of marriage and they need help and those who've just given birth and they need help to care for their babies so kirksville people would you put the name of that and maybe contact website or something down in the comments i would say i would come back to do this 
But the, 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 I'll probably forget. And I'm sorry. My brain's kind of busy. And sometimes even super important things just slide right out one of my ears. But this is why we feed the homeless. This is why we take care of people. Because what we do matters and it changes. We are releasing good into the cosmos. And driving back evil. So. Why did God create Hitler? Because God didn't know Hitler was going to turn out that way. That he turned out that way was due to the actions of man, not God. Think about it. And some of you already, after all that we've done in all of those sermons and many scores of verses, still jerked a bit when I said God didn't know how Hitler was going to turn out. Why? Because Hitler had choices. God gave him choices. He didn't choose well, which is probably the understatement of the century. There was a young lady, uh, I, I believe several times now, I'm, I'm not going to call her, I guess I will, she's written her story. Her name was Suzanne, Lord and a passion for the souls of the people on the island of Taiwan. She uh, found a young man who had the same passion. They did everything right. They courted for three years. They prayed. They, they stayed chaste with the purity culture that they were raised in. Every date they focused and prayed about their, their desire to one day, perhaps God would bring them together and they could bring their combined love for God and Taiwan into a marriage. When, after he proposed, they fasted and prayed. They asked their friends to fast and pray with them. Their pastor fasted and prayed and they all agreed this is the right move. After the marriage, the husband got into one affair after the other, became abusive and eventually fractured her cheekbone and divorced her while she was pregnant. Well, let me ask a couple questions. How could God set up this girl with a man that would do this to her and her child? Well, that's a very valid question. If God planned all things and God knew the future, please remember my nice little whiteboard thing I did for you. There is no the future, but people think there is. And so why didn't God do something? Her Christian friends, by the way, helpfully, pff, not helpful, suggested she hadn't really heard the voice of God properly. I, I got to ask those friends, if you're listening to this, then what are the chances anybody ever has? And how could anybody ever be sure that they had? They took years. They talked to everybody they knew, their spiritual leaders, those closest to both. They all prayed. Everything looked go, 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 green flag until the rings went on. What could they have done different? Some actually suggested to her well, not suggested. They flat out told her. God knew that all of this would happen, but he led her. I'm not making this up. 
led her into the marriage anyway so that she would be humbled or perhaps even be punished for some secret sin. Are you angry yet? You should be angry. I, I look and go, maybe you haven't heard of Job? There, it's a pretty big book in the Bible. Quoted a lot. And you are talking to this girl, Suzanne, as if you were the worst of Job's so-called comforters. It makes also God a failure because if he led her all into all of this to teach her something, it only left her bitter. And if you're going, aha, that shows her faith. In all Christian love, shut up. You would be bitter too. You'd be brokenhearted too. And just because somebody else has suffered more than you doesn't mean God likes you best. I was told the story before. I'll be brief then. I was in a little church in Ohio after coming back to the States in the late 80s. And because I was a shrink and had a practice there, uh, they said, why don't we do a marriage seminar for the community? And we did, it was very well attended. One of our older ladies in the congregation uh, was just, why would we even need this? My husband and I have been married, I don't know, 142 years, we've never had an argument. First of all, not buying it, but second of all, maybe because you never gave them a chance to say a word, but I kept that all inside. It's usually best to keep that inside. Instead, I looked at her and I said, well, why do you think that is? And she said, well, because we knew what we were doing and we just did it right. And I looked at her and I said, maybe, but maybe God knew you couldn't handle a marriage in which there was any conflict. So he made sure that you got an easy one. She just looked at me and I said, sometimes what we think is a sign of our strength is really a sign of God's grace in our weakness. By the way, we ended up becoming really good friends. Not that day, but it got there. What would you say when she would ask you, how did this happen? Why did God let this happen? What would you say to Suzanne? How about this? That God regrets leading you into that marriage as much as he regretted making Saul king. His dreams were shattered too. His heart was broken too. He was let down. He hurts for you. But just like Saul, your husband was a free agent and he could choose, he could choose to become a bad person, an evil person. And like Saul, he did. Now, Taiwan is heart and from her possibilities. But I will also tell you this, Suzanne, as long as there is C, D, and so on, and it will never end because he will find a place for us. But wherever he finds that place, it will still be a battlefield and bad things will still happen. He didn't cause it. He didn't plan it. He didn't know it was coming unless he had determined it ahead of time. And we all know a God of love would not determine that bad happened to a, a good person out of the blue. 
And you could argue that he planned for happen to Jesus, but Jesus was in on that plan the whole time. So that's, that's just not a corollary here. It doesn't work. Not a parallel situation. Regardless of what plan he has to get to, to find one that works for both of you. And regardless of the pain along the journey and the pain on the battlefield, he will be with you. And he will hurt with you and he will rejoice with you, just like he told us that that great cloud of witnesses, cheers and grieves, when they watch us go what we're, what we're going through. We have a long, long, long line of military service in our family, military or law enforcement or both. And so things matter to us. When I see on a license plate or a sticker or a placard in a window, a gold star, I say a prayer. Gold star means that they lost a son or a daughter in the war. And that's, sometimes you'll go through and I'll see stars. I've never seen more than that. I pray I never do. God is a gold star. God lost, really, really adored. And he equipped and he blessed and he prepared. And they shoveled all of, he shoveled all the treasure and time into them. And they rejected him. I've seen it. I've seen it happen whenever churches take one of their own who wants to go do a, be, be a missionary and they send them to the proper training they send them and the mission work goes great it absolutely does years and years later the adult child now comes back to the congregation but chooses to have nothing to do with them because now they know what real church work is like and they can't f settle into this American consumer faux Christianity. And so the very people lives for five years, a decade, even more, are now rejected by the one. They that when parents send their kids off to university and they, they pour their life, their prayers and their treasure into this child only for the child to become a point where they think their parents are idiots and everything their parents believe is stupid. Does this hurt yet? Should. I've seen people do it with their children, with their adopted children, their foster children. Now do you hear the cry of God when he says, I showered gifts on you and you took my gifts and you gave them to other lovers and my heart is broken. Now those words out of God aren't some anthropomorphic throwaway line, they're reality. In fact, he even tells us, you get enough righteous people in that city, I'll save it. He cares about us. He pours into us. And he is let down more than any of us have ever been let down by God. He is let down on a daily basis by the people that he has given so many gifts. People say, can God, atheists will say, can God do anything? Then he can make an unmarried bachelor. He can make a round triangle. The answer is God is limited to the reality in which he works and the limitless possibilities 
therein. He chooses, he chooses to work in that frame. And work is the right word. He loves us. He cares for us. And he bleeds with us. This is the last of the long series and the shortest of the long videos. These together with, I'm going to guess right now, seven sermons in the, set, in the sermon series will give you, well, let's see, what would that be? Three and a half, six and a half, about, about 10, 12 hours of spoken word. That's, that's most novels. I hope that it helps. And I want you to know, I want to, I want to end this by talking to the hurting folk. I don't, I don't even want to talk to the judgy people because if they're still with us, I'm, I'm not sure what I could say. So I want to talk to the hurting people. The hurt that you experienced, you didn't necessarily cause. Maybe you did. Maybe you, maybe you stupidly made a stupid mistake and you stupidly knew you were stupidly not to do it. Okay. But a lot of us have been hurt. Before I met Miss Cammy, I was engaged. It's somebody I loved and I got hurt. Oh man, did I get hurt. Some parts of me are probably still. Now, frankly, I'm thrilled that I didn't marry that person. I'm thrilled that I married Cammy. There's no look backs there going, oh, if only it would have worked out. At the time, I was certain this is what God wanted and I was wrong or somehow I or she blew up everything and didn't live according to God's plan, whatever it is, I think most of us have been hurt. I had a job I loved with people I loved that I got fired from. I mean, out of the blue and told not only was I not anymore, but neither I nor Miss Cammy, sweet Miss Cammy, were members there anymore, period, done. That hurt. Now that hurt moved me to a different plan in life as did the one with the first engagement and where I am now with Miss Cammy and with you through our safe harbor is a much, much better place, but I cannot deny the fact that I was hurt and scarred. And I know you were too, by the things that happened to you. Sometimes not just once. Some of you divorced an abusive person only to marry after great care, examination, research, and caution another person who ended up to be, who knew, nobody, an abusive person. And now you're wondering, how did God allow that? God didn't allow it. God didn't plan for it. He didn't want it. And he hurts as much as you hurt. Because there is no future. There is only what we do now that happens next. And then what we do then that affects what happens next. And there are 8 billion plus players on this planet and one God who's big enough to deal with all of it. And he's the God in whom I have trust, not a dictator, not a one who makes us robots, but one that's in his image who hurt, cry, laugh, all of it, just like him. I'm really glad we have that God. And I'm very, very, very glad the Bible tells us that. Just so sorry that I and many, many ministers missed it so, for so long. Now we know. My heart is with you. My prayers are with you. May God bless you. Thank you for being a part of us. I don't even have words to tell you how much it means to Miss Cammie and I that you love us, pray for us, 
and even allow us to eat. Thank you. God bless you. Go in peace. He'll be with you wherever you go.